0: Of course, you know, 10,000 reasons is it's just a figurative number. The concept with this song is however many reasons we can give to be thankful for all that God has done in our life, there's always so much more that we can't even begin to fathom that God has done for us. So it could be 10,000, it could be 100,000, it could be one million reasons for us to be thankful to God for all that he has done. That is why we worship his holy name. When we um, talk about worship, when we talk about um, what it is we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, a, a word comes to my mind, and that word is passion, and I wonder, when you hear that word passion, what immediately comes to your mind? Maybe what image you have when you think of passion, what do you see? You see someone worshiping? What, what is it that you see when you think of the word passion? Passion. Well, I've, I've come up with a uh, picture illustration that I want to share with you, and maybe it's coming up on the screen here behind us. Maybe. We have a, a picture of passion, and it's two guys. I saw it earlier. I know it's here. Okay, well, I, I'll set it up for a, another moment. Um, I uh, was a am a graduate of the Florida State University. There they are. Yeah. This is passion. This is passion. Now, here is what you need to know about me. I was actually roommates with a guy on the right-hand side. So I know that many of you are aware of the fact that I'm a fan of Florida State, that I was a student there at one point. But maybe you don't know how deeply embedded Garnet and Gold is into my blood. I was roommates. These are the two original Garnet and Gold guys. I don't know if you've ever seen them before. They've kind of become, alongside of Chief Osceola, kind of our mascots around Tallahassee. These guys, um, not these guys, they have now graduated and moved on and they're, they're replaced. It's actually um, through the Baptist Campus Ministries. So there is a, a significant reason for Baptist Ministries to stay on the campus at FSU because if Baptist Campus Ministries go away, the Garnet and Gold guys go away. But have you ever seen these guys on TV or if you've been to a game in Tallahassee, have you, have you ever seen them? Okay, a couple of you have. These guys, they, they take photos like this the entirety of the game. From, from the opening kickoff until the closing, the closing seconds of the game, they just go around the stadium posing for pictures all over. People line up for, for hours to get pictures with the garnet gold guys it's a huge deal Um, what you don't know about these guys is is um, they ride into the game on one of those two-seater bicycles so there's kind of like this all this build-up they live close to the campus or close to the uh, stadium and so they ride the two-seater bike into campus they're taking pictures out in front of the stadium before the game starts Um, it takes about three hours for these guys to get prepped for a typical football game what they do is they paint their bodies yellow and then they douse themselves with glitter and then they take tons of hairspray and spray their entire body with that hairspray to get the glitter to stick it takes hours to prep themselves for a football game so the game takes 4 hours prep takes about 3 the cleanup is disastrous Our our tub was stained garnet and gold. Well, it was stained garnet because he was the garnet guy. You just hop in the shower, and it takes about two hours to get all that stuff off of you. But this is the picture of passion. And every fall, thousands and thousands of people descend upon Doak Campbell Stadium in Tallahassee. I just drove by it yesterday, and we were passing through. And I've just got to make a. Every time I pass through Tallahassee, I just got to swing through. Just check out the campus one more time. Make sure my girls see where they're going to school one day. Um, You know, a lot of people pick their universities based on their chosen professions. I picked mine based on football. I was not a football player, I was just a football fan. My very first semester at FSU, 1999, wire to wire, first ever wire to wire national champions. I was in the Sugar Bowl that year in New Orleans when Peter Warrick lit up the Virginia Tech Hokies and we were crowned national champions. It was a significant moment as a first-timer on campus. I just assumed that was the way it would always go. (laughs) The next year, we did make a return to the national championship. We lost to Oklahoma, and then Chris Rick's era began and Florida State era of football uh, began to descend downhill well that's another story. The point is every football season thousands tens of thousands of people gather maybe they're not quite this gung- ho, but I know in my section there's a guy just below me that he dresses as a full Seminole every single time I mean he's got the headdress he's he's got the war paint on I mean he lo- he may be from the Seminole tribe of Florida I'm not sure, but on Saturdays in the fall he would pass for it um, we've got Chief Osceola and renegade the most famous preseason tradition, pregame tradition in all of college football and I know that Florida State's not, we're not by ourselves. I know just down the road here in Gainesville, Saturdays in the fall, tens of thousands of people will gather to show their passion and enthusiasm for the Florida Gators. They'll cheer, they'll scream, they'll holler, they'll go crazy. I mean I even went to a Jacksonville Jaguars game last fall and there's actually people that do that at the Jaguars game. I know, it's hard to believe. Not quite as many. Maybe, maybe if the team was a little bit better, the enthusiasm amongst the fan base would be a little stronger. But I saw in, in, in the section I was sitting in here in Jacksonville, about three rows below me were people painted in teal and black and screaming for three hours while the Jaguars lost to the Indianapolis Colts. So we see passion on full display on Saturdays in the fall all throughout the South. But perhaps our passion is a little misguided because these same folks that dress in garnet and gold and spray paint themselves and glitter themselves will roll in on Sunday morning to church and you think we're gathering for a funeral. And I just wonder what happens between Saturdays when we're screaming for touchdowns and our impassion is so high and then we roll in on Sunday mornings for what ought to be the greatest celebration in the history of the world. Sometimes our passion meter drops when we gather for worship. And it's not a Mandarin thing. It's just a question I've asked in churches everywhere. is Why? What happens between Saturday and Sunday? And why is our passion for God sometimes minimalized when it comes to our passion for our favorite team, I know we're not all football fans in here, so you just replace it with whatever you're most passionate about. And maybe we need to evaluate ourselves a little bit, evaluate our lives and, and find out why is it that for us church is just church, just a, a segmented, compartmentalized part of our life. Or maybe God is asking for something that's a little bit more significant than that. If you would, please. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read a few verses. Starting at verse 34 through 40. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees... So let's go back and let's analyze these verses just a little bit. I know probably many of you have uh, sat through countless sermons and Bible study lessons on these verses. But let's just, let's look at it one more time together this morning. And the first thing we see is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been lobbing questions at Jesus. If you look earlier in chapter 22, it started with the Pharisees and they actually sent some of their disciples. So they sent some of their underlings to Jesus to ask him a question. Jesus responded, and then the Sadducees jumped in. These are two kind of religious political groups of Israel at the time, and so Pharisees sent their disciples in. Jesus responded. The Sadducees then asked Jesus a question. Jesus responded. Then the Pharisees weren't happy with the first two answers that they had received, so instead of sending in the amateurs, the understudies, the Pharisees sent in one of their big guns a guy who was very familiar with the law and their goal is not to gain learning from Jesus I mean it's like there is a crossfire here they're not desiring to learn or gain any knowledge from Jesus all they're trying to do is trip Jesus up their ultimate goal is not to to gain better understanding of Scripture or understanding of God's Word or for allow God to change their hearts and lives their goal is is to catch Jesus speaking out of both sides of his mouth. So when they come to him with this line of questioning, you've got to understand, they're doing it in hopes that he's going to say something that will incriminate himself. So they send in their big gun, this expert in the law, and he asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. Now the law we're talking about here is not governmental regulations. The law we're talking about is the Mosaic Law because these are Old Testament, uh, these are guys that are uh, studied up in Old Testament law. These are laws and regulations that Moses had set in place in conversations with God and and had been in play for, for many, many years in the life of Israel. Now what's interesting is the Israelites had appointed rabbis and, and these rabbis had then... They'd added additional laws, and they broke up these laws and rules based on what they thought was most important. And so what had started off a a fairly simple uh, law system, they had expounded it and expounded it and analyzed it and analyzed it. There was hundreds and hundreds of laws and rules and regulations that governed the Israelite people. And so these guys are thinking, there's no way that Jesus is going to be able to say what the greatest law is. And he responds with a verse that we're very familiar with. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, what's interesting is this isn't breaking news here. Jesus isn't sharing with these guys something they have never heard before. As a matter of fact, this is kind of the main guideline for the Israelites. It's called the Shema. And if you actually go back and look in Deuteronomy, if you're flipping through your Bible, flip back to Deuteronomy flip to chapter 6, and you can find it in verses 4 through 9. So this is hundreds of years before Moses has set down the law. And here's what he says in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 of the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So there's a part of me that thinks Moses had already clearly said a huge law here. How could these guys think they're going to trip Jesus up? Jesus knows God's word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is completely familiar with the word of God. So how do they think they're going to trip him up? As a matter of fact, the Israelites took this to a huge extreme. When it says, tie them to your foreheads, they actually, that's what they did. They called them phylacteries. You should check it out. Go Google it when you get home or Google it right now. I don't care. Um, They would take these boxes with scripture wrapped up inside this box and they would strap it onto their foreheads and they would wear this verse around as they, as they conversed with people throughout the day, they would tie it to their arms. I mean, when, when God said, strap it to your forehead, attach it to your arms, write it on your doorpost. The Israelites took this seriously. That's exactly what they did. If Jesus, if God said, write it on the doorpost, they'd go home and they'd write it on the doorpost. If God said, attach it to your forehead, that's what they did. The problem became that these Israelites had become hardened to the truth of this verse. They had gotten into their routines, they had gotten into their law-abiding, and they completely forgot the nature of what God was trying to communicate to them. To love Him with everything that they have. And you see here that it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now what we're not saying here is that there's actually compartments or different categories of the way that we should love God. What Jesus is communicating, what God was trying to say is, your worship of God is a whole body commitment to him. It is not, and sometimes, unfortunately, in church in our day and age, when we think of the worship of God, we think of this moment right now on Sunday mornings. We stand and we sing a few songs and we have worshipped God. And yes, we have. But if that is our understanding of what the worship of God is all about, then we are truly misguided on what worship is. Worship is our entirety of our being devoted and committed to him. Which means religion is a a fellowship of Jesus is not a compartment of who we are. It is all about who we are. When we open and study God's word, that is worship. When we are teaching God's word, just an hour ago, if you walked up and down our halls, there are teachers teaching adult classes and children's classes and student classes. That is worship taking place. If you are in a class setting and you are a student, then that is worship. Worship is not about music. Music is a great way for us to worship God, but that is not what worship is all about. And it's not just about what takes place in this building or this campus on Sundays. You know, I've heard some people say, well, this is, here's my one vice. You know, I, I follow God with my entire life, but I have this one vice. That is not truly a complete surrendering of God and worship. When we are surrendered to God and worship, it is our whole lives. There, there are no vices. There are no bad habits. It is a life completely surrendered and devoted and committed to Him in every aspect, in every avenue, in every phase of our life. Every book we read, every movie we watch, every song we listen to, every conversation we're involved in, every waking moment, every breathing moment, everything about who we are is devoted and committed to Jesus. That is what worship is all about. Sometimes we try to tuck away, and well, just for a few minutes, for this for this next hour and a half as I watch this movie, I'm just going to put my Christian values to the side and I'm going to absorb whatever it is coming through this screen. And then and then as I walk back out the door, I'll pick up my Christian uh I'll put up, pick up my Christian outfit, and I'll put it back on again, and I may even criticize the movie that I watched for all the harmful effects that it had on me. But it was our choice. How we choose to worship him, how we choose to surrender our life to him. And the danger of me using music or television or video or movies as an example is some of us may have complete other areas of our life that are not surrendered to Him and we miss it. The point is, look at your life. Evaluate every second. Find out the areas of your life that are not completely surrendered and devoted to Him. It may mean conversations that need to stop. It may mean that habits that need to be breaking. It may be relationships that need to be either renewed or... Or separated. Every moment of every life is surrendered as worship to him. That is what Jesus is communicating to us when he says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind and strength. That is what true worship is all about. Loving God with all that we have. And I love that he says that this is the first and greatest commandment. I've seen some people that try to lump these two verses in together. Well, there's the the first commandment and there's the second commandment. But Jesus was very clear. When Jesus said first, he meant first. If we go back to a sports analogy, if I'm on a team, I want to be first. If I'm second, I'm not first. So when Jesus says first, and if you actually look at the Greek, first means primary, it means number one. It means that the love for God exceeds everything else. Love for God is first, and it is the most important. But then he goes on to say, the second is like it. So he does go on to say, there is a second important rule for us to follow. There is always the first rule. A love for God exceeds all others. It is always going to be topped. But there's a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and prophets hang on these two commandments. So when I think of the love for neighbors, I think of serving. Loving people means I'm serving others all the time. Now, for some of us, we think, oh, I've got a good relationship with my neighbors. So what does Jesus mean when he says, your neighbors? Well, what Jesus is saying here, think about the person that you dislike the most in your life. It may be a personal relationship. It may be, I mean, some of us, I mean, just like that, it didn't take any time for us to come up with that person that we dislike the most. You may know them personally. It may be a political leader. It may be a religious leader. It may be somebody overseas who did something horrific to our country years and years ago. But think of of who it is in your life that you dislike the most. For a while in my life, it was probably Osama bin Laden. So when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, for me, in my analogy is, love Osama bin Laden. Now, I'm not military, but I know the effects that September 11th had on my life. And for me to love that person as I love myself, it's hard for me to grasp. Because it's easy for us to love the people that we love. I mean, it's easy for us to love our moms and dads and brothers and sisters and children. And children, most of the time, it's easy for us to love our children and aunts and uncles. It's easy to love those people that are closest to us. But what about those people that drive us crazy? What about those people that argue with every single thing we say? God is calling us to love all people. It's easy to love a picture of an orphan you see on your TV screen. It's easy to love a kid like that. And they need love. They need the love of God. It's not as easy for us to love the people we can't stand. That's what Jesus is calling us here. It's a greater love than anything that we can possibly fathom. Because, here's here's the key. We can get the second rule correct when we get rule number one correct. And that's why God said rule number one is rule number one. Because when we understand what true surrender to God is all about, a love for God that's heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we can more easily love the other people around us because it becomes personal, because we suddenly realize the depth of love that God had for us. John 3.16, not the John 3.16 you know, actually 1 John 3.16. How do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We should do the same for others. So love is what God has done for us. And when we think about our lives, and think about the love that God demonstrated for us, at least for me, then it makes sense as to why I should love others the same way that God loves me. Because I don't deserve what God has done for me. I don't deserve his love. There are other people in this world that may not deserve to be loved, but because God loves them, because God loves me, and because I love God, then I'm going to choose to obey his commands and I'm going to love others. I'm going to serve. Now, how do we model that love for others? Because it's very simple for us to sit back and say, I love other people. I have a love for others. But how do you make that love for others tangible? How can you touch that love? How can I look at your lives? How can you look at my life and determine, am I modeling what it is I'm preaching? Am I modeling what it is I say I believe in? Because it's real easy for us all to sit in this room together and say, oh, we love everybody. Well, how are we showing it? The best way to show that we love other people is to serve them. Serving other people with a selfless ambition causes people to not understand what it is that's going on. They don't understand serving. They don't understand a selfless love. We all understand a love that gets something back in return. But what we're talking about here is putting others' needs ahead of our own. So as we close out this time, a couple of questions for you. What activities are you involved in that help you to better love God? What things are you involved in in your life right now that model the love for God that we've been talking about? Do you involve yourself in corporate times of worship? Then absolutely, that counts. Do you have some private times of worship? Yes, that counts. Do you have a a personal prayer life, a devotion life with God? Then that's great. Are you teaching a small group? There you go, that's awesome. I'm asking you specifically, maybe right now or maybe in the moments as we go our separate ways here in a little bit, I want you to begin to write down some ways in which you are demonstrating your love for God. How are you making it tangible? Because it's real easy for us to sit here and say, oh, I love God. How are you modeling that out? How are you living it out? So we love God, and then we love others. So what are some tangible ways in your day-to-day life that you're demonstrating a love for others? Because just saying we're doing it is not doing it. What are some actionable things that you do each and every day to model a love for others? What are some tangible things you're doing to demonstrate love for other people who you can't stand? Hugging our kids, reading them stories, saying prayers with them, that's great. But what about the people that you don't talk to all the time? People that you don't relate to all the time? How are you demonstrating and modeling love? How do we see this in action at Mandarin Baptist Church? What could we see happen? We're diving into a new school year. I'm sure if you talk to Leanne, there are needs in our kids' world for teaching. Maybe a way for you to model your love for God is to dive in and commit to teaching a a group of kids for the upcoming school year. We have needs in student ministry, and I would love to plug you in. Maybe your way of modeling your love for God is by committing to work with a group of sixth grade boys for the next year. God bless you. Maybe your way of modeling your love for God, I just talked with Ron Carr earlier today. We're having a, a church wide work day coming up in August. Maybe the best way that you can model your love for God is to commit to come up here and serve on a Saturday to help spruce this facility up a little bit. Maybe you're singing in the choir, maybe you're playing in the band, and that is great. Those are great needs that we have. But what are you doing? what can you do? Maybe what's something that you're not doing but you feel like I can do? What's a new task, a new opportunity, a new area of your life that you need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? What are some areas in which you can model your love for God? What are some ways in which you can model your love for others? Just imagine this with me. Imagine if every single child at the Cabaret Children's Home For those of you who don't know about the Cabaret Children's Home, it's an orphanage in Haiti that our church sponsors through our association. We support... What if every single child in need in that children's home was sponsored by people in this church? What if we just committed as a church to cover every single sponsorship that needed to be covered at Cabaret Children's Home? Is that a ridiculous thing to think about? Is that a ridiculous idea to throw out there? Maybe but what if we bombarded the association with requests to sponsor kids through cabaret to the point that they just looked at us and said, we don't have any more kids to sponsor. We're going to have to go out on the streets and and recruit more kids to come to the orphanage because there is no longer a need in this place because of the love for others that Mandarin Baptist Church has modeled. What What if right here in Jacksonville, What if Kim Carr, who works with the International Learning Center, what if there were so many of us that desired to tutor and teach foreigners as they came as immigrants into our country? What if there was such a response by folks in our church that Kim had to come to us on a Sunday and said, I don't need any more tutors. I don't need any more help at the ILC because y'all have covered it as a church. What would that look like? Because maybe that is what God is calling us to do. There were 10 couples that recently walked through the steps to become certified foster care parents, 10 couples in this church, foster care, perhaps adoption. What if Duval County came to this church and said, every foster care case in need in this county has been met by folks in this church. Your church has stepped up and met every foster care need we have in this entire county. That may sound ridiculous, but I know of a church in Birmingham, Alabama that did that very same thing for their county. Shelby County in Alabama does not have any kids in the foster care system because of one church committing to foster kids. What if that's what our church decided to do for the greater Jacksonville area? What if children all over the world were rescued from poverty today because of folks in this church? Maybe it's not Cabaret Children's Home. My wife and I sponsor kids through Compassion International. Maybe maybe you just find a kid on a website through Compassion and decide to give some money to support that kid. To pull them out of poverty. To give them hope for tomorrow. What if our church committed to every family member sponsoring a kid? What would that look like for our world for tomorrow? What kind of impact would that have in what it means to serve other people? I just met with uh, an organization this week called World Relief. I met with them last week. And they do some amazing things. And our church has been involved in it before. Um, when refugees come to our city, they they set up a, a temporary apartment for them. So when they come, there's a place for them to live. And so churches actually adopt an apartment and adopt a group of a family. And they set that apartment up for that family. What if our church met with World Relief and every need that World Relief had for refugee families coming into Jacksonville was met because of the love for people that Mandarin Baptist Church modeled. They send teams to meet these refugee families at the airport as they step off of the plane into the United States for the very first time as as residents of this country. What if what if we sent a greeting team to the airport every single time a refugee family stepped into our city and we just sat there and cheered for them and had balloons for them and high-fived them and welcomed to our country and we took care of every single need that World Relief had? What would that look like? It starts with each one of us individually committing to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others. It starts with that commitment first. But then we got to do something. My high school principal, every single day, it got so irritating, every single day at the end of our morning show, he'd get in front of the camera, he'd point his fingers at the camera, he'd say, get involved. I graduated 17 years ago, 16 years ago, and I still remember his face in front of the camera and his fingers pointing at me every single day of the week saying, get involved. That is the the calling that God has placed in the lives of every single one of us. He's pointing at us saying, when are you going to get involved? It's one thing to gather and sing and worship. It's another thing to make an impact in this world. So when are we going to make an impact? When are we going to get involved? Take some time this week. To evaluate your relationship with God. To evaluate your love for Him. What are you doing? What are some areas of improvement? Take some time to evaluate your love for others. And what are you doing? And what can you do better? The reason why we love others is because Jesus loved us first. That is why we love. Because of the love that He has poured into our lives. So as I close this moment, maybe there's some of you in this room, you don't know what a love for Jesus or a love from Jesus looks like. There's an opportunity today for you to respond. There's an opportunity for all of us to respond. But maybe for you, you want to start this passion, this love relationship with Jesus. You need a fresh start in life. You need hope. We love because He loved us first. God loves you. He has an incredible plan for your future. And it starts by responding to Him. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your great love. God, we thank you for the wisdom that you give Jesus. That when surrounded by people who are only trying to trip him up, Jesus speaks truth into their lives and speaks truth today, 2,000 years later, into ours. God, this Christian walk is not that hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard to do, it's not hard to understand. You've called us to love you and to love others. God, help us to evaluate our lives, dig into our hearts. Help us to see the areas that need to rise to the top, the areas of repentance, the areas of our life that are not surrendered to you. God, help us to love you more. Help us to love others more. God, give us tangible opportunities through this church body and on our own, opportunities for us to model what love looks like. God, maybe there's some of us in this room today that need to respond to your love for the very first time. I pray they will have boldness to respond in this moment. Just a moment. Our worship team is going to lead us in a song of response. I want to invite you to stand with me in a moment as we sing together, as we worship in song. The altar will be open. I will be here. Dr. Dan will be here. If you need to respond in this moment, be bold and courageous. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.